he's taken the lessons of his culture and of his country and of his family and learned them all too well. Coriolanus is a play about a man becoming the, the epitome of his culture, the epitome of Roman value and valor. He's the answer to the question of what happens when a culture gets what it wants. It produces a Coriolanus, the fulfillment of its dreams, the embodiment of its self-image. So the play is fascinating to me because Shakespeare's asking what happens when that embodiment comes home and home can't stomach him. What stands out is the intensity of the play. Coriolanus moved almost immediately from its ancient Roman setting to political and social problems that could easily be those of today. And it does so with spellbinding speed. It's a complex, unusually modern, and powerfully engaging play. It's also rough. It led Shakespeare to produce uh, language that he never used before and he won't use again. It raises questions about identity, national belonging, and cultural ideals. It asks us to think about these in a language that's uniquely captivating, often troubling, but above all, memorably rich. This play gets us to think about what it means to live together, what people need to live with others, with ourselves, and with our most important beliefs and ideals. My name is Philip Lorenz, and I teach Renaissance drama at Cornell University. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor Lorenz about the last of Shakespeare's Roman tragedies, Coriolanus. Written around 1608, this play is set in the 5th century BCE, when Rome was a small territory under threat from the neighbouring Volscian state. Caius Martius Coriolanus, Rome's most powerful soldier, defeats the Volskis and is encouraged by Rome's elite patrician class and his ambitious mother Volumnia to stand for public office. But Coriolanus's very power and the pride they see accompanying it lead the common people to fear and hate him. Coriolanus, for his part, regards them with anger and contempt. This combustible mutual hatred explodes when Coriolanus is asked to humbly solicit the people's votes or voices. Coriolanus denounces the people and they banish him from Rome. Exiled from the home that he'd risked his life to defend, Coriolanus allies with the Volscian general Ophidius to make war on Rome. Can anything save the city? Can anything save Coriolanus? When he walks, he moves like an engine and the ground shrinks before his treading. Coriolanus is, as Harold Bloom says, the greatest killing machine in all of Shakespeare, but he's much more. In this play that traces the rise and fall of a Roman hero, it also traces the problem of a Roman ethic. There's a gap, a human lack. And I think that's what's Shakespeare is exploring in his last great tragedy, the gap, the gap at the heart of a certain concept of heroism. Coriolanus opens with a stage direction that says, enter a company of mutinous citizens with staves, clubs and other weapons. Thus, the stage is set for one of the play's key conflicts, violent conflicts of class. The stage directions tell us that the play opens with mutinous citizens, not soldiers or people from the noble or aristocratic class. Citizens means basically the majority, but not 
the most powerful of Romans of Rome's inhabitants, but its population, which is a kind of key word and idea in the play. The citizens, also called plebeians, are the lower and middle classes of Rome. They have come out in arms against the upper-class patricians. There is famine in Rome, and the citizens believe the patricians are deliberately holding back food stores. The sight of an armed crowd protesting over hunger would have recalled vivid recent memories for Shakespeare's English audience. They're protesting food shortages, something which is what ex- exactly what was happening at, at the time that Shakespeare was writing the play in England. They accuse the patricians, the elites, the aristocrats who make up the Roman Senate, of withholding grain, of hoarding. Shakespeare's main source uh, is Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans in the English translation of Thomas North. In Plutarch, the reason that the plebeians are mutinous is that they had agreed to fight in foreign wars against Rome's enemies. If the patricians would forgive their loan debt, they did fight um, bravely, which is not exactly how they're Um, depicted by Shakespeare and Coriolanus. And when they came home as war veterans, the patricians reneged on the promise and sold many of them off to slavery. Shakespeare changes all that, and he makes the conflict all about hunger and famine, which, as I say, were serious realities in in England in 1607 and 1608. Additionally, it was a time when a practice known as enclosure was introduced into England. So, Landowners would enclose land that they formerly used to grow malt or barley or corn and make pastures for sheep um, to graze. And this led to widespread rioting in what's known as the Midlands region and also near Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare himself was a landowner. The changes that Shakespeare uh, makes to Plutarch's depiction of Coriolanus are really crucial to understand what he's interested in in this play. The patrician Menenius Agrippa tries to placate the crowd. Assuring the plebeians that the patricians care for you like fathers, he offers a fable about the body politic. Once upon a time, he says, all the parts of the body rebelled against the belly because, they said, they supplied the belly with food while it gave nothing in return. But the belly protested that it used the food it received to nourish the whole body, just as the patricians care for the whole city. In the course of his interpretation of the belly fable, he's raising a lot of questions about how we are to think of the relationship among the different classes, the the citizens, the patricians, the senate and the people that they rule over. The patricians have just given something to the people. The plebeians will now have tribunes to represent them in government alongside the patrician senators. But one patrician wishes the crowd had been suppressed instead. In comes Caius Martius, the elite Roman soldier. The crowd call him chief enemy to the people, and Martius loves them no more than they love him. He speaks with what one scholar calls the most unattractive opening lines of any Shakespearean character, (laughs) Uh, Brian Vickers says. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues, that rubbing the itch of your opinion make yourself scabs? Lines that don't only reveal his total contempt for these people, but also introduce one of the play's central governing metaphors, the metaphor of the body politic, and the question it raises of how the people fit in as part of that body. In this case, clearly in Coriolanus' eyes, 
they don't occupy a very glamorous part. Hang you, you cry against the noble senate who keep you in awe which else would feed on one another, says Marcia scornfully. Go get you home, you fragments. Meninius's fable showed the body working together, but Marcius's language suggests a body coming apart. He says he would never have given tribunes to the people and wishes that he could use his sword on them. He'll soon have a chance to use that sword. Rome's enemies, the Volskis, are mustering for battle. They are led by Tullus Aphidius, a soldier so great that even Martius says, Were I anything but what I am, I would wish me only he. Martius accompanies the general Cominius to the wars. The tribunes ponder as he leaves. Was ever a man so proud as is this Martius? The next scene suggests where Martius might have gotten his pride. At home, Martius's mother, Volumnia, chides his wife, Virgilia, for being anxious about Martius going to war. Volumnia recounts how she sent her son to a cruel war when he was just a boy. I was pleased to let him seek danger where he was like to find fame. Volumnia rejoices that he proved himself a man through his heroism in battle, and Martius has, apparently, been striving to prove himself to her ever since. Discussing Martius's character, the citizens acknowledge his great military service to his country, but some say that his great deeds were done just to please his mother. What really uh, distinguishes Coriolanus is the particular relationships, including one for which there's absolutely nothing like it in all of Shakespeare, and that's the relationship between uh, the, the mother and the son. The historical Volumnia is, is very passive and not a central figure in Plutarch's source. Shakespeare transforms her into probably the most uh, compelling and fascinating character of the play. Outside the Volscian city of Coriolis, Martius rallies his soldiers to attack. They are beaten back. Martius curses them and leads another attack. This time it is the Volskis who retreat, fleeing back into the city. Martius calls on his soldiers to pursue their foes through the city gates, but no one follows him. The Volskis shut their gates and Martius is trapped inside on his own. He is himself alone to answer all the city, exclaims one soldier. They give him up for dead. But then they see the bloody figure of Martius opening the city gates to let the Roman army in. The Romans conquer Coriolis. Martius and Aphidius meet, declare their mutual hatred and fight in single combat. But they are interrupted when Volskis come to Aphidius's aid. Thanks to Martius's superhuman efforts, the Romans are victorious in war. Cominius wants to reward him with treasure, but Martius refuses. I cannot make my heart consent to take a bribe to pay my sword. He likewise silences the army's praise of him. I have some wounds upon me and they smart to hear themselves remembered. But his great deeds at Coriolis will be remembered by the honorific name Cominius now bestows upon him, Coriolanus. Coriolanus and the army return to Rome. He is wounded. I thank the gods for it, Volumnia says proudly. I have lived to see inherited my very wishes, only there's one thing wanting. 
She wants one more public honour for her son. As a military hero, Coriolanus would be the first in line for the office of consul, Rome's chief executive officer. The tribunes fear that if Coriolanus takes power, they will lose their power. But they have a plan to ensure that he never does. The tribunes are depicted as having the ability to strategize, to listen, to hear, to wait, to gauge. In the Senate, Cominius praises Coriolanus's deeds in battle. If valour is the chiefest virtue, the man I speak of cannot in the world be singly counterpoise. He was a thing of blood whose every motion was timed with dying cries. Cominius's language, like much of the play's imagery, represents Coriolanus almost as something inhuman, a force, a thing, not a man. The admiring Senate named Coriolanus consul. But before he can take office, he must stand before the people in the gown of humility, show them his wounds and request their voices or votes. Another thing that's crucial uh, is that in Plutarch, Coriolanus had no problem transitioning from the battlefield to politics. He wasn't great, but he did have a political career and he had no problem with the rituals of showing himself before the people to be approved as a consul and wearing the gown of humility, all of which for Shakespeare's character are unthinkable. Coriolanus hates the idea of displaying his scars to the despised plebeians, as if I had received them for the hire of their breath only. But the senators insist on it, and so do the tribunes, because the tribunes hope he will anger the people with his scorn and ruin his political chances. And indeed, Coriolanus can barely conceal his contempt as he stands in a humble robe and asks the people for their voices. Better it is to die, better to starve than crave the hire which first we do deserve, he says. The people do give him their votes, But once he leaves, they start to wonder if he mocked them. The tribunes convince the people that Coriolanus will take away their rights if he is made consul, and that they should go to the Senate and revoke his election. In the Senate, the tribunes tell Coriolanus that he has lost the people's voices. Coriolanus has always despised the people for their inconstancy and changeableness. Now, he explodes in anger against the mutable, rank-scented many who expect to be given food and power when they ne'er did service for it. He tells the senators that sharing political power with the plebeians will ruin Rome. My soul aches to know when two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. He calls on the Senate to take away the Tribune's power, and the Tribunes arrest him as a traitor. He is, as he will repeatedly assert, a product in his own eyes of his own nature. But what Shakespeare allows us to see is that that nature is also clearly culturally produced. He loves Rome, but he hates a lot of real Romans, showing mainly unguarded disdain for the Roman who is not a brave soldier. The crowd arrives, violence breaks out, and the tribunes call for Coriolanus's death. Menenius persuades the people to give him a trial before they demand his execution. Volumnia and the patricians plead with Coriolanus to repent his angry words and to speak kindly to the people to win back their favour. Would you have me false to my nature? 
he asks. Must I, with my base tongue, give to my noble heart a lie that it must bear? I will not do it, lest I cease to honour mine own truth and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. He refuses to compromise his own absolute sense of integrity by flattering the people he hates. But Volumnia erupts back at him. At thy choice, then, come all to ruin. Thy valiantness was mine. Thou suckst it from me. But owe thy pride to thyself. Faced with his mother's anger, Coriolanus agrees to do as she says and go speak mildly to the people. But the tribunes plan to provoke him again, knowing he cannot rein in his anger once it has been set off. When Coriolanus comes before the people, the tribunes accuse him of plotting to seize all power for himself and call him, again, a traitor. Coriolanus erupts. Traitor? The fires in the lowest hell fold in the people. The people call for his death once more and the tribunes banish him from the city. He exclaims, You common cry of curs whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you. He then goes, like to a lonely dragon, into banishment. In exile, Coriolanus makes a surprising choice. He had called Aphidius the man of my soul's hate but he also always admired him, and he now seeks out his Volscian rival. Perhaps even more surprising is how warmly Aphidius welcomes him. Coriolanus offers to help Aphidius attack Rome as revenge for his banishment. Aphidius responds, Let me twine mine arms about that body I do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love as ever in ambitious strength I did contend against thy valour. I have nightly since dreamt of encounters twixt thyself and me. We have been down together in my sleep, unbuckling helms, fisting each other's throat. He bears his body and offers to either let them kill him or join them. And Ophidius, his great enemy, welcomes him with great joy and describes the nightly dreams that he's had of being down with Coriolanus, buckling and fisting in language that's very, very evocative and clearly expresses the intense homoerotic bond that the two warrior figures have. In Rome, the tribunes rejoice in the peace the city enjoys now that Coriolanus is gone, but their glee is cut short when they learn that he is leading the Volscian army against Rome. Cominius says, He is their god, he leads them like a thing made by some other deity than nature, and they follow him against us brats with no less confidence than boys pursuing summer butterflies. The people regret ever banishing him. Cominius and Menenius plead with Coriolanus not to destroy Rome. Coriolanus is hardened against them both, but then his mother arrives, along with Virgilia and his son. Coriolanus is moved by the sight of them. I melt and am not of stronger earth than others, he says. But he quickly hardens himself again. I'll stand as if a man were author of himself and knew no other kin. Volumnia kneels to her son and pleads with him at length, begging him to show a noble grace to both parts and to negotiate a peace between the Romans and the Volskis. Coriolanus makes no reply. 
At last, Volumnia says bitterly, Come, let us go, this fellow had a vulsion to his mother, his wife is in Coriolis. And finally, Coriolanus takes her by the hand and speaks, Oh, mother, mother, what have you done? You have won a happy victory to Rome, but for your son, most dangerously you have with him prevailed, if not most mortal to him. Coriolanus agrees to make peace, but he knows that Rome's safety means his danger. Orphidius is already frustrated at how Coriolanus's glory diminishes his own position in the Volscian army. Now that Coriolanus has given away their victory, he plots to destroy his once beloved rival. Volumnia returns to Rome where the city honours her as their saviour. Coriolanus delivers the peace treaty to the lord of Coriolis and Aphidius publicly denounces him as a traitor. He whined and roared away your victory, boy of tears. Coriolanus erupts in indignant fury. Boy, like an evil in a dovecote, I fluttered your Volscians in Coriolis alone, I did it. He returns to Ophidius. He knows what he's uh, in for. Nevertheless, it's only with Ophidius's calling him a boy that he reverts completely to the Coriolanus we know, insisting that everything he's done, he's done alone. His autonomy is alive and well, or at least his attachment, that way of understanding himself, whether he fits into a larger whole or not. He certainly has to be a man. His entire identity consists of that. Reminded of how Coriolanus conquered their city, the people of Coriolis call for his death, sounding much like the people of Rome. Avidius's followers attack Coriolanus, crying, Kill, 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 kill him! Coriolanus dies. My rage is gone, says Avidius, and I am struck with sorrow. He shall have a noble memory. He helps to bear Coriolanus's body away. In our next episode, we'll look in depth at Coriolanus's narrative and sense of Roman identity and ask why that identity makes him so unyielding. We'll also examine what it is that does finally persuade him to yield. <laughs> <laughs>